heart of the East Coast, this is Sports Raver with your host, a West Coast girl who raves about all things sports, Carolyn B. Today, we're going to talk about my raves. Is your favorite minor league team on the Major League Baseball chopping block? Raiders player trolls fantasy managers, but he makes a good point. High rates of concussions in volleyball? Plus, the latest drama in esports, my news raves, and the obscure sports report. Welcome to the Sports Raver, where I rave about my favorite things in sports, and I rave against the worst things in sports. Thanks for coming to rave with me. I'm your host, Geraldine B. Thanks for listening in. Let's get right into it. It was a bad day for Dan Bailey of the Minnesota Vikings this weekend. It was worse than a bad day. It was so disastrous, in fact, that a kicker hadn't missed three field goals and one extra point in a single game since 1961. Bailey, who is number six all-time for accuracy on the list of NFL kickers, struggled in week 13 as well, missing two extra points and one field goal. Players get their confidence shaken all the time in football. Carson Wentz is a perfect example. But there's no other position quite like the kicker, who has time to set up, do a warm-up kick, line up the ball, and finally launch the ball through the uprights. And then miss. I would imagine it can be kind of like approaching the tee on the first hole of a golf course. You play it out in your head, take a practice swing, you give your club a little waggle or two, and then you swing like you're Bryson DeChambeau. Instead of sailing 300 yards down the fairway like you envisioned, your ball flies straight up in the air and lands about 20 feet away from the tee. Confidence gone. They say golf is played between your ears, and I'd guess kicking in football is about the same. Or in this case, was it Joe Buck wielding his jinxing power like when he made Ravens kicker Justin Tucker miss a 36-yard field goal? It was him and Troy Aikman, after all, calling the game. The Florida Gators are throwing shoes instead of shade and are paying the consequences. LSU defeated Florida 37-34 because, well, Florida cornerback Marco Wilson thought it a good idea to tackle Tigers' Cole Taylor six yards shy of the first down line, then rip his shoe off and throw it. Instead of being forced to punt, the Tigers got a new set of downs and eventually kicked a 57-yard field goal to win. The Gators did get the ball back and marched down the field but missed their own field goal as time expired. LSU coach Ed Orgeron made light of the win by suggesting the equipment guy loosened the shoe so it was easy to take off. But Dan Mullen, the Gators coach, was not in a joking mood after the game. The loss makes it almost impossible for Florida to reach the college football playoff since they have two losses on the year now. Maybe Marco Wilson was trying out to be Gator Kyle Trask's backup. He did launch the shoe 20 yards after all. A. Lim Kim is the newly crowned champion of the 75th Women's U.S. Open, and she did it in exciting fashion, coming from five strokes back to take the lead in the final round. She birdied 16, 17, and 18 to finish with a 67 for the day. Kim, who is from South Korea, was making her U.S. Women's Championship debut and had only two other professional victories before the tournament. 
Kim is also the first to come back from five shots under to win since Annika Sorenstam did it in 1995. One million dollar prize for first isn't so bad either. LeVar Ball's dream of having all of his sons playing in the NBA at the same time hit a roadblock when the Detroit Pistons decided to waive LiAngelo Ball after not playing him at all in their preseason games. He'll most likely go on to play for the Pistons G League team in Grand Rapids. LeVar's disappointment aside, I do feel for LiAngelo. It must be difficult living with the pressure of being a ball son, but it must be off the charts tough if you are the middle son that has struggled to find the success your brothers have had. And speaking of his brothers, LaMelo Ball had an exciting debut in the Charlotte Hornets preseason game against the Toronto Raptors. LaMelo did miss his five shooting opportunities, but it was his passes that had everyone electrified like the no-look pass behind his back to Miles Bridges. With Charlotte having some of the worst game attendance numbers in the NBA, LaMelo's flashy on-court plays should get people's attention. And if not, the Hornets can always get LaVar at the games to do a meet and greet or to share his vast, successful business knowledge. Get your photo op here for $495 a pop. Major League Baseball is getting closer to announcing the full contraction plan for minor league teams and the unavoidable truth is whole communities will be devastated. The contraction is reducing the minor league system from 160 teams down to 120, which leaves only four affiliations for each club, AAA, AA, High A, and Low A. The draft will also be reduced from 40 rounds to 20, helping to diminish the need for so many affiliates. The other significant aspect of the contraction is the doing away with any minor league oversight, leaving control completely with Major League Baseball. There are so many aspects of this contraction that make sense, financially and operationally, for Major League Baseball that is. What it leaves in its wake is where the devastation lies. Minor league teams have operated in conjunction with Major League Baseball under an agreement called the Professional Baseball Agreement and the Players Development Contract. The PDC is what divides the share of financial responsibility between a minor league affiliate and its MLB club. The MLB club pays for player salaries, bonuses, coaches' salaries, and team medical personnel. The minor league club is responsible for the stadium, such as rent and upkeep, for the players' uniforms, travel to minor league games, and all staff such as concession workers, security guards, the cost of food and beverage supplies, etc. Without a 2020 season, the owners of the minor league teams and all employees were already in a bind, but now for some that will be left with no direct link to a major league team? What's left? Minor league teams are essentially small businesses in their towns. They don't see any revenue from television broadcasts or big league player merchandise sales. Nothing that the MLB sees. Their revenue comes only from what the minor league ballpark makes in ticket, concession, and minor league team merchandise sales. If a team loses its affiliate status, it might be demoted in a sense to a draft league or a wooden bat league, but without the direct MLB connection, there will be less interest in the team. Less of a talent pool. There won't be any high draft prospects or big league players coming through on rehab. Like any sport, baseball is driven purely by money. MLB clubs save money by reducing the number of affiliates. They will have less salaries to pay out. Not that most minor league players make that much anyway. Barely over minimum wage for many or around 14000 for a season. 
and they aren't even allowed to file for unemployment in the off-season because they are under contract. As fans of the game, most people won't notice any difference when their teams take to the diamonds in the spring. That is, if baseball starts on time, MLB owners will benefit from the changes. High-level talent and staff will continue to collect paychecks. But for the minor league players still chasing their dreams, and for the communities built around the small scale of America's pastime, the effects will be felt for a lifetime. Listen up, people. NFL players don't care about your fantasy teams. And the question is, should they? Sure, some players also have fantasy teams, but they are only allowed to do it for fun, basically. This weekend, Josh Jacobs, running back for the Raiders, posted on Instagram that he was out for Sunday, which sent fantasy owners into a freak-out mode tailspin, scrambling to find someone to put in their lineup. He posted again, letting everyone know exactly how he felt about fantasy football with a not-very-nice middle-finger emoji. And then, lo and behold, he played in the game fairly ineffectively with only 49 yards rushing and 25 receiving. Josh Jacobs' fantasy owners were not amused, to put it mildly. Some called him immature and others said he should be fined by the NFL. Look, I understand that people who play fantasy football do so with passion and intensity. I'm one of those people. I get that some people have a lot of money riding on their fantasy seasons. But one thing I do not agree with is feeling like the players owe you something. Fantasy football has brought another layer of recognition and viewership to football games. I know that the NFL is reaping the benefits of obsessed fantasy football managers, along with DraftKings. But the players, they owe you nothing. They are obligated to their team, to their owners, and to their fans, and themselves. Not you. Playing football is their job. Richard Sherman once said, people who play fantasy don't see the players as humans anymore. Instead of seeing the impact an injury has, like pain and fear, uncertainty, rehab, fantasy managers see a commodity. It was pretty funny on Jacob's part, though. He waited to post that he wasn't playing until the early games had started, which meant some sub-possibilities might already be playing. And it was the first weekend of playoffs for a huge majority of fantasy leagues. If you were one of those people who lost because Josh Jacobs fooled you, yeah, it might not have been very nice to trick you, but you need to remember you're really just a fake manager. You should have had James Robinson on your team anyway. Concussions in sports have become an increasingly hot topic over the past several years. The NFL, for one, has been heavily criticized for the concussion rates amongst players and the damage they live with when their careers are over. Rugby, hockey, soccer, and basketball all have high numbers of concussions. But would it surprise you to know that women's volleyball also has a high rate of concussions? Just ask Haley Hodson, a former volleyball player for Stanford and an Olympic hopeful. Journalist Patrick Ruby did a story on her detailing how her entire world was turned upside down after suffering concussions that were handled wrong. Or ask Corinne Atchison, a coach in Texas who suffered several concussions and is still learning to live with long-term effects. Many college coaches can give examples of their players receiving head trauma and the after effects they suffered. For some, like Haley Hodson, it can be not only the end of volleyball, but coming to terms with the lasting results. 
football, hockey, soccer, those kinds of sports get a lot of attention paid to their concussion rates. But is that same attention put on the lesser followed college sports like volleyball? Do lesser known sports get the same support and care that the higher profile ones do? It's hard to imagine schools spending as much money on their volleyball players' well-being and health as they do on the football players. It's a matter of economics. The symptoms of concussions, and especially the long-term effects known as post-concussion syndrome, can vary in each athlete. Lethargy, anxiety, depression, trouble concentrating, even personality changes can also be symptoms of having PCS, but these can easily be misdiagnosed. For some, those symptoms never go away. And there's still a culture of you just play through it, or you downplay symptoms so you can get back to competing with your teammates. Without coaches and trainers, and even medical staff putting athletes' health above a winning record, concussions will continue to have a huge role in the conversations surrounding college sports. A couple of interesting situations in Fortnite this week. Leon, Kanata, Kim, and TSM have agreed to part ways. Kanata had only been with them for eight months, but during that time he had reached four straight Champion Series finals. Rumors are that the split, though it was considered mutual, may have been instigated by the recent decision held up against Kanata. In September, Kanata was banned by Twitch for, quote, making threats, unquote, but Twitch didn't explain the ban further or provide examples of what was said, though Kanata said it was just trash talk. Kanata appealed but lost with Twitch upholding the ban and stating, quote, we do not unsuspend accounts for this level of abuse, unquote. Those are pretty strong words. Despite the issue with Twitch, Kanata, who is only 14, will be a highly sought-after free agent. Cheaters never win. In the Fortnite Frosty Frenzy tournament this weekend, Calvin Kez Dom was banned for cheating during the tournament for using a soft aim hack. Kez vanished mid-battle after the ban was delivered, leaving his two teammates high and dry. He later deleted his Twitter account, solidifying in everyone's mind that he must be guilty. Kez has won over $60,000 in prize money in other Epic Games tournaments, but I don't think he'll be winning any more money playing Fortnite. And actually, cheaters do win. Just ask the Houston Astros. But we love it when karma comes around and has a say. The Obscure Sports Report. What? That's a sport? Uh-uh! No way! Do you know what sport is considered the most dangerous? I can promise you it's something you won't find me doing. It's base jumping. Base stands for the four surfaces from which those doing it can jump. Buildings, antennas, spans, which are bridges, and earth, you know, like cliffs. The ultimate thrill for some is jumping off the world's highest anything. Some favorite base jumping locations are the Burj Khalifa Tower in Dubai at a half mile high in altitude and Yosemite's El Capitan at 3,000 feet. However, it's illegal to base jump in all national parks in the U.S. Jumpers can reach speeds of up to 140 miles per hour as they fall. 
Some use a parachute, deploying it at the last possible minute, and others use what is called a wingsuit that looks basically like a flying squirrel. One of the main competitions for base jumping is the World Base Race, whose motto is the world's fastest human. It takes place at the Troll Wall in Norway at 3,600 feet. The first competition was held in 2008. The race includes a designated path that the jumpers must navigate and a designated landing area. There are three competition events, the solo speed, which is a timed race, the head-to-head -head speed, which is two jumpers in a timed race, and a distance competition. 2020's competition was canceled, but they are now in the planning stages for 2021. There are many people who do base jumping, but one of the craziest is Jeb Corliss, who has base jumped from just about every high point imaginable. Being the most dangerous sport in the world comes with a high death rate. Many things can go wrong, as you can imagine. But that doesn't stop those who love it as they pursue the ultimate rush of flying. Hey, my fellow ravers, that's a raver wrap for today. Thanks for listening in. And remember, whenever you get that glass half-empty feeling, just add vodka and stir. Thanks for listening to my raves. Become a sports raver, too, by following me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and checking out all my podcast raves. Till next time, I'm Geraldine B., the sports raver.